Hey, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be in 17 through 24 if you want to begin to make your way there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 through 24. Now, Paul has been hitting the last couple of weeks as we've looked at it, some principles for marriage, and, and really what he's going to do in 17 through 24 is almost an aside and then coming back and picking up and expanding upon an idea that he's going to lay down in this. He's going to do that in 25 through 40, and that's where we'll conclude our study on Christian ethics next Sunday. But as you begin to look at this passage, just understand that he's interjecting an idea. And so if you're trying to tie it too closely to what you saw in 16 or what you saw in the passage before, you're going to leave yourself kind of thrown overboard because he seems to pivot uh, and do that fairly abruptly. Let me read the passage for us, and then we will walk through uh, together. Paul writes and says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him uh, him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freeman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul offers a message to the Corinthians and really addressing uh, the particularities of kind of being social climbers and being dissatisfied with life, being dissatisfied where you are. So in that, we find that there's great application for us in in a, a society that really sets its eyes, sets its affections on attaining more, having a, a better job title, having more money in my bank, having more education, really just achieving this next level of success and satisfaction, and you can set your mind on any number of things and say, if I hit this level of satisfaction, then I'm happy. If I hit this level of financial stability, I'll I'll be happy. If I hit this kind of metric in my relationship, I'll be happy. And so all of those things cause us to place our minds and place our affections on something outside of us And we kind of set this sense of, if I don't attain these things, well, I'm just going to keep working until I do. But what this passage calls us to is to focus on where God has you. There's this terrific freedom in this that where you are, God is, is there with you in the midst of this. That where you are in your struggles and your pursuits of sin, that the Holy Spirit's working in you to sanctify you. But understand that the work he's doing with you in that and and the work you want to do on yourself personally, you you want a better body, better physique, and all these things, these things are not coterminous. These things don't always end up in the same place at the same time. And so we have to be careful lest we conflate, bring together things that could be otherwise irreconcilable, should not be held together. So let's just walk through Verse 17 kind of spills out Paul's thesis, his understanding, his, his big statement for the whole thing. 
This idea that the gospel calls us to walk out the implications of life and salvation that God has given us. Look how he writes this. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And then he says, into which God has called him. Now, if we're going to look at this, can I understand how the, the structure of this works out? The big command, the imperative contained in verse 17 is to walk out faithfully. If you're going to look at this in the Greek, the idea is that we're to walk out faithfully two things. The first thing we're called to walk out faithfully is the life God has assigned to us. And the second thing we're called to walk out faithfully is the call that God has apportioned to us. So let's talk about this idea that God has assigned your life to you. If we were to ask you, and I'm not going to, everybody raise your hand if you're just incredibly satisfied in life. Your hand would be up Sundays, down, down others. Your spouse, your friends would be looking at you saying, is Bill, is June really satisfied in life? Because we tend to base our satisfaction on how things are going. If things are going well, we're more highly satisfied. And we define well, we understand well, according to things, according to the way the world operating the way I think it should be. But there's this terrific understanding here, in one sense, to know that where you are, in some sense, the struggles of your life today, God has perfectly tailored for you that you might grow closer to him. And so if you live the totality of your life constantly saying, when I make it the other side of this, I'll finally be happy. If I make it the other side of this, difficulty, finally everything will begin to fit together. You'll be a lot like my six-year-old who this week, he said, Dad, was it a long time to wait before you got married? I'm, I'm thinking, he's saying, were you old when you got married? That wasn't at all his question. What he wanted to get asked, did it feel like a long time waiting for you to get married? And I said, Graham, everything good in life feels like it's a long time to wait for. Well, this didn't satisfy his six-year-old heart. He goes, oh, I knew it. When can I get married? I'm like, 37. When you're 37, you can get married. Because, you see, he, he's, in some sense, and it's appropriate for a kid to get this. It's not appropriate for a grown person. We do the same thing. We are dissatisfied with the various seasons of life that we're in. And so we look for the far side and think that when we get there, my life will arrive. When I get this promotion, when I make partner, when my uh, relationship with my wife is this, when our kids are this age, and all these things hold with disdain the season of life God has you in. If you're constantly looking for the next season, you're going to miss what he's doing in this one. If you're constantly looking for the next season, you're going to miss what he's doing in this one. Do you not know that the struggles of your current season are preparing you to walk joyfully in the next? Do you understand that? The things you're tripping on and falling on and struggling with, those things are preparatory for this next season of life. There is no arrival wherein you step in this next season of life and you're like, everything's great, I get it, and everything's fine now. Imagine if you wanted to be a doctor and all it took to be a doctor was to say, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a doctor. Now all of a sudden I can walk into a surgical studio and I can lay chase on the table and I can do open heart surgery. He's not going to let me do this. There are preparations that I have to go through in order to be qualified and made ready. The least of these being medical school. And the same thing is true in your life. God has laid out and designated that you are where you're supposed to be. 
Now, this is difficult. Why? Because this absolutely pushes back on our assumption that our life is meant for our upward mobility, both socially and economically. I want to have more money in my account. I want to attain to this next level. And if we're not pursuing this, the so-called American dream, if we're not pursuing this and somebody says, well, what do you want your next job to be? Well, what do you want this thing to look like? The assumption is if we're not pursuing this, then we are invariably lazy. Don't you have any hopes and dreams? I'm just going just to stay here and just thought I'd do this thing. What, what are you, lazy? Don't you want more for your life? The implication therein is if you don't want something greater tangibly to hold in your life, then you're being disingenuous, then you're being lazy. But look at what he says here. We're to walk out faithfully the life God has assigned to us. You got three kids and they're always whiny? You need to walk out faithfully the life God has assigned to you. You got a spouse you don't always get along with? You need to walk out faithfully the life God has assigned to you. You have terrific health difficulties. You need to walk out faithfully the life God has assigned to you. Quit looking at other people's lives and saying, I want my life to more closely resemble them. What this does is is it disregards the incredible gift that God has given you for the difficulties and the blessings of your current situation, your season of life. Somehow we've looked at contentment and said contentment is akin to laziness. The gospel repeatedly calls us towards contentment, recognizing that God's greatest blessings are where he has us now. Not this thing, this this elusive future that we've set our hopes and dreams on. So we need to walk out faithfully the life God has assigned to us. Secondarily, we need to walk out faithfully all the various implications of the gospel. He says the life he's assigned to you and the call he's given you. The call, the mandate, if you will, that God has given to all of humanity is that each and every man, woman, and child put their full faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, him crucified and him resurrected, that everyone respond positively to the gospel of Jesus. This is God's mandate. This is the call. And that call is issued and uttered and mandated for all men, for all peoples. There is no other name whereby we might be saved. There is no other name whereby we must be saved. It is a mandate. It is a command. And to not surrender ourselves to that is to be disobedient to that command. But if you receive, if you confess, if you believe, you also surrender. And in surrendering our life, we walk out the implications of the gospel. And there is no pause button on the various implications of the gospel. It carries us into interpersonal relationships. It carries us into work relationships. It carries us everywhere we go. And in each and every encounter, we are called to walk out its various implications. And a lot of this looks like terror and difficulty for us personally. We are submitting ourselves willingly to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it is to be a Christian, is to choose to suffer. It's to choose to to say, not my will, but yours. It's to choose to say, not the way I want it to be, but the way someone else wants it to be. Paul summarizes it well in Philippians 2, and he says, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, considering others' needs and interests more significant than your own. In essence, we are called to be servants. 
The greatest implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this idea that I'm supposed to pour out my life serving Peter, and I'm supposed to pour out my life serving Corey, and, and he and she are to do likewise. And if, if we find ourselves caught up in this preoccupation, instead of constantly being on this, this treadmill of life that's spinning way too fast, will be so much more useful for the gospel. Life, in some ways, it's just like being caught up on this treadmill. I caught myself watching, watching two videos uh, this weekend. One is, people are awesome. I look at this and say, how do, how do they do that? I have no idea. But the one I more readily associate with is the fail army idea, that, that you have these people that go out with these physio exercise balls, and they jump on treadmills, and they do flips, and I don't get that. Like, I'm never going to be that. So I'm the guy that has the exercise ball that jumps on it, whose face slams into the treadmill, who does a flip, and he's got road rage on his face, road rash on his face. People say, what happened? And you're like, I fell down some steps. Because that sounds better than what you really did, right? But this is a lot of what life is. It's being caught up on a treadmill that's spinning way too fast, and we feel like we have to make excuses for our inability to master the difficulties of life. They're designed this way. A lot of the difficulties of your, of your life aren't intended to prove your mastery and your ability to overcome terrific obstacles. In some sense, they're, they're, they're designed and created to crush you, to break you down. Why? To show you your incredible need and dependence on a God who's able to overcome. You have terrific power and ability inside you, but it is not of you. It is of Him. Quit trying to tap into your own who you want to be and tap into who God has made you to be. And occasionally, that's going to be a person who fails miserably. And in failing miserably, we're able to glorify him more. And the repeated refrain and call is to walk that out faithfully. All of us together. And then Paul goes, he says, hey, look, Corinthians, I don't want you to think that I'm picking on you and saying, you guys just need to kind of aim for the middle in life. You're not too bright. You're not too pretty. I don't want you to think that I'm just picking on you. This is my rule in every church. This is the way that we, we, that we see life orchestrated. This is the way that God has designed it, that everyone in every place, that in Ridgecrest and Highland Terrace and Wesley, that every church you'll find yourself in, the way we're supposed to live our lives is living out the implications of the gospel and being faithful to the life God has assigned us, not someone else's conception of it. And so he's going to give us two illustrations. One that is kind of this ethnic uh, illustration, and the other one comes from slavery. And so look at the first one. He deals with the idea of circumcision. He says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. And was anybody at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And so in essence, he's got these two people groups. And in the two people groups, he says, you've got Jew on this side and you've got Gentile on this side, and they are recognizable. They are split according to this physical manifestation of what has taken place in them. And he says, don't seek to be somebody else. Don't seek to be somebody else. And so you find these two groups, and, and those who, who, who have been circumcised recognize that it's a terrific liability for them engaging in the marketplace. And so they say, I want to somehow obscure, or I want to hinder the ability for people to recognize my association, my ethnicity. He says, don't do that. And then you find these other people and they say, man, I really wish I was this super spiritual person who this was my upbringing and this was my heritage and, and, and this could be my backstory and I could have always been among the people of God. And he says, and don't do that. 
And then he's going to say something that's really going to rock the boat. Then he's going to say something that's going to be terrifically devastating to anybody there who is Jewish. And look what he says, verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Now, Paul has said something similar in Galatians 3.28. In Galatians 3.28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one. You're all made one in Christ Jesus. It's this, this idea that, that he has come in and taken two people who have no common heritage, and he has made them one in Christ. So he says, there's nothing deficient in you you need to fix for the gospel. None of these things that you might be able to change and affect externally can have eternal ramifications and implications and impact to your life. They're both fruitless. Now, in the New Testament time, in the first century, this would have been something they continually talked about. If you're in Acts 15, you'll find out there are these guys called the Judaizers, and they set as a precondition to salvation that you must be circumcised. Somehow, if you come to know Jesus, his blood has uh, healed you and redeemed you and saved you, that that's not enough. You've got to do something additionally to secure and to, to enhance your salvation. And one of the great sadnesses is when you look in Galatians 2, we find that Peter this rock upon whom I'm going to build this church, that he himself has fallen victim to this, that he, is, he just doesn't want to rock the boat. He just doesn't want to offend people. And so he's engaging in the same thing, directing people to live under the law, under the harshness of it. And so Paul goes and he corrects him. But it's this terrific idea. Look what he says here. Neither one of these things count for anything, but he comes and he says, paradoxically, but keep the commandments of God. So begin to look at this and understand, and, and what I want you to see is that the idea of circumcision was so incredibly important that if a child was born and the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, that the child could be, in fact, was mandated to be circumcised on the Sabbath. And so in some sense, we see the idea that circumcision preempts the keeping of the Sabbath. And so that's how important, that's how special it was for them. That's how incredibly valid their understanding of this. But we begin to see and recognize that it's not merely the keeping of this outward symbol which unites us to God. There's nothing externally you can do. Attending church on Sundays and giving more money and being more faithful in the way that you talk and engage, none of these things would enhance or change God's view and his perception of you. But this is an Old Testament idea. This isn't something new and novel. Paul came along and said, you know what? We've been doing this for a long time. It's, it's just pretty worthless. It's time we move on to something else. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, <clears throat> this is a lengthy section, but I want us to read this. Starting in verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So he's calling them to fidelity. And to keep the commandments and the statutes which the Lord your God has given, I am commanding you today and for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of the heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set in his heart to love you, or set, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. 
as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be, long, be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, the God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And so we recognize in this that what he calls them to is not merely an alteration of the external, but a radical termination of the internal, that my heart would no longer beat for me, but it would beat for him and for him alone. That the way I guide my life, that when I set my hopes and dreams on what I want to be long terms, that I wouldn't base those things on what my hopes and dreams are for my life are, but I would submit those things to what he has ascribed, what he has allotted, what he has directed for me. And keeping the commandments is how I honor him. Now, keeping the commandments doesn't mean you need to go and, and re-listen to or re-study uh, Deuteronomy and the other things that Jesse's leading you through. But this idea of keeping the commandments is a heart tender and broken before God. As Christians, we have the terrific benefit of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So God has given to you a spiritual director, a spiritual guide, and his goal in your life is to lead you in the pursuit of holiness. And that's how you keep and honor the commandments. It's not you walk into a room, you say, do I steal it or do I not steal? I don't know, let me see what the Bible says. But it is living a life in submission to him. You honor him by living a life submitting constantly, hour by hour, minute by minute, to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And summarily, he begins to, to give us this statement in verse 20 as he moves into the next illustration. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul is pushing back on the idea of upward mobility. He's pushing back on the idea of kind of manifest destiny. My life is only going to be as great as I'm able to make it. So he's going to move into a rather sensitive subject within the first century, the idea of slavery. And so we don't have time, nor do you have the interest for me to go into all the various ways that first century slavery is different from the North American slave trade. Suffice to say, it is uh, vastly different, but you still own someone else. You still own someone else. So Paul goes in and he says, look, we've got this condition. We have free people and we have people who are enslaved. And we have people who are enslaved and owned by slaves. And so we have these two groups of people. And so he asks this question. He says, were you a bondservant when called? In essence, the question is this. When you came to know Jesus, were you owned by someone else? When you came to know Jesus, were you owned by someone else? Now, their, their society and kind of how they break up and understand social pecking order, to be a slave would quite possibly impact your ability to rise in society. Why? Because someone else owns you. You can work for them. You can own your own business. You can do a lot of different things. But to a certain degree, you are always going to be limited because you are owned by someone else. But Paul offers this terrifically freeing statement that would have seemed incredibly difficult to them to apply. Look what he says. Do not be concerned about it. They would say, well, you know, when people look at me and they understand kind of what I do and, and how my life operates, it's embarrassing. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, people look down on me. Paul says, don't be concerned about that. Don't allow how other people view you or what society says about you to impact your understanding of where you stand before God. Do not be concerned about it. 
but he also wanted to be sensitive to the situation the slave found themselves in. And he didn't want them to understand that it would be sinful for them to leave, to change. Because what does he said immediately before this? Don't, uh, don't change your situation. Remain in the situation that God has you in. Walk out faithfully. So to the slave, he says this, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you're able to save enough money, if your master provides for you a way of release, a way of manumission, take that up. Why? Why would he say that? Because of the possibility for freedom in the exercise of the gospel if they are not beholden to someone else. If they don't have to wake up when somebody else tells them to wake up, if they don't have to go to sleep when somebody else tells them to go to sleep, if they're able to make their own decisions, it presents uh, an opportunity to be a great deal freer and more effective for the gospel. But look at this. In verse 22, Paul's going to take this free person over here and this slave over there. And societally, if we were to look at these two people, we were to say that the freedman is better, this free person is better, and this slave is right about down here. And you and I, in some sense, do the same thing with people with higher education, with white-collar jobs, and people who live in more affluent neighborhoods. We say, for some reason, societally, culturally, these people are better than these people. This is kind of the, the, the rungs of the ladder of social, social climbing that we assign on people. If they dress a certain way, then they're up here. If they dress a different way, they're down here. If they speak a certain way, they contract verbs correctly, they, they use adverbs correctly, and all these various things. If they know what an adverb is, we put them up here. If they don't, we put them down here. No, that's just me. Okay. <laughs> but Paul steps right in the middle of, of this terrific turmoil centering around how do you have church with people who are free and people who are enslaved? How do I have church with people that I have so many more liberties than you do because of my financial status or my, my educational status or whatever than, than someone else? How are we able to come together? So Paul moves in to address it and to provide terrific freedom and release for both. He says, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant. And so you've got this guy over here and he is a slave. And his master may or may not treat him well, and his master may or may not be a Christian. But he says, this person who's called at the point of salvation, they were a slave. This person is a freedman of the Lord. This person has been set free, but his, his freedom is to be used for God. And he turns to the other person, and he says, likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. And he said, you've got the free person. And the point of salvation, they belong to, to themselves and they have terrific autonomy. This person's now enslaved to Jesus. This person's now enslaved to Jesus. And this is the way they should operate and this is the way they should live their lives. And then you've got this person over here. And they were a bondservant and they were rejected by society and nobody cared anything for them. And at the moment of salvation, they've been elevated and they've been made a freedman of the Lord. So you see what he's done there. He's inverted the social order and brought terrific parity in the gospel. But I want you to recognize something. They both have the same master. They both have the same obligation. So he's taken this, this slave and he said, you have terrific freedom in the gospel. But what they would have understood is that if I am freed, I'm freed because someone has been a patron. Someone has paid for my release. I'm going to take their name as my own and the conditions they set upon my freedom will be the way that I live my life 
if you are in this room, if you are in this room, the Bible says that you are formally enslaved and in bondage to sin. And at the moment in which you confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, you were no longer in bondage to sin. You are no longer in bondage to death. This was no longer your destination. You were freed to the Lord for his service. His name became your name. His holiness became your holiness. And the freedom he wants you to walk in is a faithfulness to his gospel. See, the freedom that he gives us isn't a freedom to explore and to navigate and to be whatever else I want to be and to marry whoever I want to marry. The freedom that he has given us is a freedom to willingly submit ourselves to him and to his gospel. We've been freed, but we've been freed with a purpose. You've not been given freedom to do whatever you want to do. You've been given freedom for the express purpose of glorying in your Lord. So maybe you felt free. Maybe you never felt the sting, the penalty, and the punishment of sin. Maybe your life has just been this, this blessed encounter of freedom. And so you don't recognize this as a need and, and, and a valid requirement in the gospel. This is why he takes the free and he enslaves them to himself. This is why he takes a slave and he frees them to himself. We have one master and one Lord, and we never get to be it. So he speaks to the group, and he says, look, I've got, I've got Jews, I've got Gentiles, I've got freed, I've got slaves, and he brings them all together. And all of us together, from all our various backgrounds, from all our various belief sets, to all our kind of the strata of socioeconomics, to everything, to everyone, at all times, in all places, he says this, you were bought with a price. So he reminds us of the high call of our freedom. He reminds us of the terrific expense of our bondage. He says, you were bought with a price. And on the basis of this, on the basis that the price for my freedom and for your freedom and for the possible freedom of all who still live in submission to sin, he says this, do not become bondservants of men. This is the terrific temptation in life that once we've set free, we would enslave ourselves to something else. Paul, writing to the bewitched Galatian church, said this in Galatians 1.10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? This is the question that each of us answer every day. Am I going to live this day, this life, to please the people around me, or am I going to live this day, this life, to please God? He says, If I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. We cannot please men and please God at the same time. If pleasing the people around us becomes the pinnacle of success for us, you will live a life of unfaithfulness to your God and to your Lord. There are many different ways that we can find ourselves entrapped in becoming bondservants, slaves to the people around us, to their opinions. We can do this, we become enslaved economically. We see somebody driving a new car, living in a new house, wearing nicer clothes, taking better vacations. We want to attain to that. We want to achieve that. We want to have the same experiences they do. And so while they may not realize they have enslaved us, we, because we want to live like they live, we're allowing ourselves to become enslaved to their reality, to their level of freedom. Now what this, like I'm not saying that if you went to Disney World and you posted pictures on it, you're going to hell. You may be. You may feel like you're there at Disney World. 
That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if we constantly make decisions based upon the realities that others get to live, they're maybe being faithful to the life that God has assigned to them. But in jealousy and in, in bitterness towards them, in setting our hopes on something else other than Jesus, we are enslaved to their reality, not to our own. So we can do it economically. We can do it ethically when we find ourselves moving and operating with people who have terrific freedom to do things that we don't have the freedom to do. God has given you the Holy Spirit in your life so that he can be your guide, not the person beside you. So when somebody comes up and they say, oh, I just, I'm able to engage and I'm able to do all these things, don't be moved off the mandates and the dictates of the Holy Spirit as he operates in your heart. We need to be a people susceptible and open and vulnerable to the movements of the Holy Spirit in my life, not to the movements of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. So when somebody says you need to homeschool your kids or private, put your kids in private school, or you need your kids to be missionaries in the public school, those are decisions that I need to make as a parent before my kids. I don't need somebody else making them for me. I didn't farm out the, the, the mandate I have to raise my kids. I thought about it, but nobody takes me up on it. Ethically, we need to be a people sensitive to walk out all the various implications that God has given us. Now, one of the difficulties in church is I think we do this spiritually. We find people that, that their gifting of the Spirit, and this is the whole sum of, of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, their giftings of the Spirit are more exciting or more well-observed than our, our own. And they say, I want people to recognize me for my terrific spiritual death. That statement alone is a recognition that you're not ready to be seen for having terrific spiritual death. But this is what we do. And invariably, the church, we, we do this over and over again. Why? Because we take people who've overcome terrific difficulties. We say, stand here and tell people how you've come overcome terrific spiritual difficulties. Why? So that you might encourage people who are currently in them, allow them to have disdain for their difficulties of their life currently, and hope that someday maybe God would bring them through this difficulty and they could stand here and give a similar message to others. Would you like 10 minutes? I'll give you 10 minutes to do that. And all the fallout that it's going to take. It is awesome and amazing when God takes us through something. A failure in our marriage, a failure in us personally, a loss of a family member, a loss of a job. And it is amazing when God brings us through the far side of this. But not all of us make it. Marriages fail, people die. Not all of us make it. And every failure in life, every difficulty in life is not an indication of personal culpability, personal responsibleness. It is sometimes. Some of us, the reasons our lives are terrible right now is we live the life of our own making. The reason you live in financial ruin is actually because you are lazy. But some of us, it's just the circumstances of life. But it is the life God has apportioned to you. You have people that love you, that want to come along beside you and to help you shoulder the burden that your life currently is. But one of the ways we become bondservants of men is by allowing ourselves to be spiritually jealous of those around us, jealous of where they are in their faith with Jesus Christ. They don't recognize that we've been enslaved to them. But we recognize it in our heart that we're not walking out our call our salvation, we're walking out a close facsimile of someone else's. This is a terrific trap of the enemy. 
that you would set your eyes and set your hope and set your aspirations on the walk of faith that God has given to someone else, not the walk of faith that he's given to you. If you want to set your eyes on somebody, fix your eyes on the prize. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. Do not become a bondservant of men. So Paul leaves us with this word, this comfort. He says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, facing death, enslaved, an outcast, or things going incredibly well, in whatever condition, whatever condition each one was called, wherever you find yourself today, wherever you find yourself being, he offers this command, there let him remain with God. kind of hope that Paul would say, there let him remain with God until God makes it better. There let him remain with God until everything kind of works out and everything takes care of itself. God is enough. And the heartaches and the difficulties and the shattered dreams that fall on the floor and the marriages that fall apart and the health that escapes us in all the difficulties of life, he is enough. And he's calling on you to walk out the life that he's given to you, to not have disdain for him, to not have disdain for the life that he has before you, and to trust in his goodness. And can I tell you this? There will be times you doubt his goodness. There will be times you're so incredibly frustrated and life is right here in your face and you can't see anything else. And in that moment, God's not calling you to put on a brave face and to lie to everyone around you. What he wants you to recognize is he's with you when you fail. And in that moment, when he's with you, you cry out and say, this stinks. This is so much worse than I ever imagined. This is so much more difficult than I ever thought my life would be. I'm so incredibly frustrated and angry with you right now. And you know what his response will be. But yet I remain. But yet my love abides. He is faithful, even when we are faithless, faithless according to Titus. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to come to you and I want to pray first for the person in this room that life for them is incredibly terrible right now. The idea of continuing to walk and be faithful to the drudgery and the pain of life seems radically unfair. So God, I pray that they would have a special sense of your presence, your love, your undergirding support for them. your goodness to them. Father, I pray that you would help us each day to be an encouragement to one another, that we wouldn't lead the people around us to be frustrated with where they are in life, but would be an encouragement to them, would love them enough to help shoulder their burden. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you whether they find themselves feeling free or in bondage, that they would find their ultimate life in reality in the free, life-giving blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to move in our hearts. Help us to submit ourselves to your spirit so that these truths might be applied. 
that we would be a people living faithfully. We're not enslaved to men. We're not enslaved to all the trappings of this life. We've been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've been brought into the rapturous embrace of Jesus, our patron, our namesake. As you say elsewhere in your word, it is for freedom that we've been set free. Help us to walk out the joy and delights of that freedom, finding ourselves always at home with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.